is the appeal of Christmas to you? Is it wrapping paper, bright lights, and candy canes? Or is it the message of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Hi, folks, and welcome back to Encounter God's Truth. I'm Wayne Shepherd, wishing all of you a Merry Christmas season and hoping that you're finding your joy in the true teaching of the Savior. I want to invite you to join theologian Dr. John Whitcomb in Isaiah chapter 61. He is about to present the third message in our current series, Voices of the Christmas Prophets. Today we're going to listen to an appealing voice. Few words can better describe the eloquent voice of Isaiah the prophet or the words of the Messiah of which he spoke than the word appealing. Here to tell the story of Isaiah 61 and its New Testament fulfillment is our teacher, Dr. John Whitcomb. Friends, I greet you at this Christmas season and invite you to join with me in listening to an appealing voice, the voice of none other than the Son of God who came 2,000 years ago as the love gift of God the Father to the human race. That's for you and for me. 700 years before Jesus Christ came to the earth, the greatest of the Old Testament writing prophets, Isaiah, spoke these words by inspiration. Listen to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, of course, speaking of Jesus, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. What an appealing voice that is. You know, really, at the beginning of Isaiah, back in chapter 11, we hear the qualifications for this person to speak perfect and gracious, and appealing words. Listen to what Isaiah had said in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, that's speaking of the greater son of David, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Now listen to what it says about Jesus. Are you ready? The Spirit of the Lord God will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is what you might call the seven-branch candelabra of the Son of God, his infinite qualifications to speak perfect, assuring, comforting, enlightening, illuminating, convicting, yes, informing words to our needy hearts. And Isaiah 11 goes on to say in chapter 11, verse 3, And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see. Of course, that's the limitation of human judges today, isn't it? Even in our so-called Supreme Court nor make a decision by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And how many of us are afflicted, friends? Think of it around the world. How desperately we need to hear this assuring, appealing voice. And he will strike the earth with fire, the fire of the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked, and the righteousness will be the belt around his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. He is an infinitely superior person than King David, to whom God gave that everlasting covenant of kingship for the Israel and ultimately the son of David, the Lord Jesus. You remember back in 2 Samuel 23, the last words of David? You know all the Psalms he wrote, all the beautiful things that he said by the Spirit of God? He said, now these are the last words of David, 2 Samuel 23, 1. David, the son of Jesse, declares, and the man who was raised on high declares, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. Now listen to what he said. Verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of the God, 
is as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds when the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after rain. This is not my house, so with God, for he has made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and secured from all my salvation and all my desire, will he not indeed make it grow. Yes, friends, the words of King David inspired and recorded in the Bible are precious and beautiful words, aren't they? Yes, but infinitely superior are the words of the Lord Jesus. And when you go back to Isaiah 11, you hear more about Jesus, that spirit of the Lord. That's his third person of the Godhead rested on him. The spirit of what? Wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Now, you know what happened when Jesus came to his hometown of Nazareth one day and uh, was in the synagogue there in Nazareth. And here's what happened. According to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, beginning with verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Notice how essential in the Bible is the relationship of Jesus to the Holy Spirit of God. Listen carefully. And news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. How providential that was, God overruling every circumstance of the life of his beloved son on this earth. Now what happened next? He opened the book and found the place where it was written. And here's Isaiah 61. Listen carefully. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Jesus said. I'm sure that synagogue crowd was shocked and amazed to hear him say that. Because he has anointed me. You know what anointed means? Mashiach. He is the anointed one, the Messiah. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden. And now listen here. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Yes, that's the first coming of Christ, where he for three and a half years went up and down to and fro across that holy land of Israel and proclaimed this message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you repent, if you recognize your need of God's salvation, your sinfulness, your disqualification for entering the kingdom until you change your mind and your heart profoundly, repent, repent, said Jesus, and the twelve, and the seventy, and John the Baptist himself, the forerunner of Jesus. Because unless you meet those qualifications, you cannot enter his kingdom. And of course, the sad, sad truth is that the vast majority of the chosen people, Israel, rejected the messenger and his message. So when Jesus quoted that passage in that synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, what happened? Look at verse 20. He closed the book, and gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. They were absolutely transfixed, amazed, astonished, astounded at who he was, according to his claim. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, that's strange, isn't it? Because when you go back to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, in that second verse he cut the verse in half. 
he only said this, that he was sent to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Because the last part of verse 2 goes on to say, and the day of vengeance of our God. In other words, that will happen at the second coming. By the mercy and long-suffering and patience of God, he has now given us already 2,000 years to repent, and the world still has not done that, including Israel. So right in the middle of that verse, he said, in effect, this has been fulfilled thus far. My first coming, my first initial offer of the kingdom has now been accomplished. So back there in chapter 4 of Luke, what happened next when he stopped in the middle of verse 2 and said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Listen to this, verse 22. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which are falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is not this Joseph's son? They couldn't imagine that a mere human could speak with such divine authority and graciousness and wisdom and power. What would we give, dear friends, to have a tape recording of our Lord's messages? Someday I'm sure he'll sit down and say, Dear child, listen to what I said to those people thousands of years ago. And I say, now, surely then they would all have believed in him, rejoiced in his coming to them and accepting him as their Messiah, right? Wait a minute. Listen to what happened next, because this is what's happening today, friends. We celebrate Christmas, but how many really understand who the the gift of God really is? Uh, Whose appealing voice are we listening to? What is the message of this Christmas season? Now, listen to what happened when he gave that Christmas message, as it were, to his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. It says, He, Jesus, said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, so do here in your hometown as well. Do miracles, signs and wonders. Why don't you do show yourself to be glorious so we can all bask in the light of your glory and your claim to be son, God's Son, the Messiah? Oh, really? Now listen. Jesus said, No prophet is welcome in his hometown, is fully appreciated, understood, recognized by his own hometown people. You remember the the weeping prophet Jeremiah? His hometown people at Anathoth hated him and plotted to murder him. They were ashamed of him, shocked about him. And how sad, how sad. But listen, Jesus went on to say in verse 25, because he loved them enough to convict them, you see, of their sin, to help them to understand they need a Savior, not just a miracle worker. Now listen to what happened. But I say unto you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, and when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. A Gentile country, Phoenicia, just north of Israel. Why was he sent there? Uh, Why did he help that woman? Uh, Why did he provide for her family? That was a shocking statement, wasn't it, of the apostasy, the depth of unbelief in, in his dear native country of Israel. He went to a Gentile place to find refuge during those months. Oh, really? Well, what, what else did Jesus say? Listen to this, verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet. That's Elisha, you remember, was Elijah's servant, his uh, follower. But what happened? Not one of the lepers in Israel was cleansed, 
but only Naaman the Syrian, who came from Damascus, a foreigner, a Gentile. He was healed. You remember he had to dip himself, uh, his head seven times in the Jordan River. He was very uh, perplexed by that requirement. But uh, Elisha was putting him to the test, wasn't he? Do you really believe God's word? Then do what God says. Do it the way he says you must do it. That's a lesson for all of us today, dear friends, isn't it? You say, to bow my head and ask for forgiveness is beneath my dignity. All right, you have made your choice. How sad. God says, just follow my directions, do my will, and you will find eternal life. Repent and believe. And then he gave another reverence, dear friends, perhaps even more shocking. He said in Luke chapter 4, verse 27, he said, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha. Remember, Elisha was the servant of Elijah. Elisha the prophet. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian, a Gentile from Damascus. You remember how he had to, had to humbly take God at his word through the prophet Elisha and dip his head seven times into the Jordan River. And his servants thought, how shocking, how humiliating. But that's the way it is, isn't it, friend? God will say, humble yourself. Repent, change your thinking, admit that you're a sinner, that you need a savior, or you can't have one. He won't save you if you think you can save yourself. So he dipped his head into that Jordan River seven times and came up totally cleansed of his leprosy. And the amazing things that Elisha told him to do, when you go back to Damascus, uh, you may keep that message in your heart. Keep that message of who God really is, the God of Israel is the only God there is that can heal not only from leprosy, but what leprosy symbolizes, human sin in our heart. The heart of man is deceitful. We know above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Like Jeremiah chapter 7 tells us. And I say, Lord, help me to understand my desperate need of salvation, to humble myself before God, the God of salvation. So only, uh, only a Canaanite woman received blessing during those years through Elijah. Only a Syrian a military man received cleansing during those years, not anyone in Israel. And, and listen to what happened in the synagogue in Nazareth when Jesus pointed those two examples out of the apostasy of Israel. All in the synagogue, now listen to this, they had just thought how beautiful his words, remember, uh, verse 22. And now all of a sudden there's an infinite change. All in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. I mean, this is unbelievable. They rose up and cast him out of the city, led him to the brow of a hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff to kill him. I've never heard of such a treatment of a guest speaker. I've spoken in hundreds of churches and schools around the country and around the world. Never, ever have I seen or heard or experienced anything like this, friends. Satan obviously was in charge, wasn't he, of that synagogue. They hated him. They thought, we are especially privileged people. Why don't we get special blessings? He said, you need to repent. You need to humble yourself. Uh, you need to change your heart and mind toward God. And so, friends, at this Christmas season, God is saying to us through this appealing voice of Jesus, repent, turn back to the Lord from whom you have departed from childhood. And I say, Lord, I need that again and again as a reminder. And so what, what happened to Jesus then? By the way, friends, uh, I have been to that hill. I have seen that place. It's a steep cliff in Nazareth. And did an angry mob of men to throw him to his death? 
What happened to Jesus? You say, well, it, it was hopeless. He was going to be killed. Oh, wait a minute. Listen to the next verse. But passing through their midst, he went his way. That's a miracle. It wasn't his time to die in the plan of his father. It wasn't his way to die. He was to die on a cross, wasn't he? As uh, one theologian put it, Dr. John Oswald, he said, out of the ragged remnants of Israel's empire comes a king who will rule the world from a throne made of two crossed pieces of wood. Yes, that's how he was to die, on a cross, having his hands and his feet pierced, as Zechariah says. He is to be crucified on a cross between two thieves, not to be thrown over a cliff. You remember, of course, over and over again, Satan attempted him to do this, to do that, to do things that would displease his father. But our Lord Jesus Christ only did what was perfect in the will of his father and only said things that were perfect as the father revealed them to him. So when we go back to that Christmas prophet Isaiah, how wonderful as we think again of what he meant by what he said about Jesus. You remember that? Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to do what? To bring good news to the afflicted, not to the proud, self-sufficient, but to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the broken heart. Is your heart broken, friends, because of sin, because of a desperate need of a Savior? Then he has a message for you, an appealing voice for your need. To proclaim liberty to the captives. Are you a captive? Am I a captive? Yes, to sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're captives, friends, under Satan, under demons, under our sin nature. If our gospel be hid, Paul said, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of Christ, the glory of God, should shine to them. We are in infinite, desperate need, friends, of a Savior. And I say, really? Do I have to view myself under such circumstances and in such a condition to be saved? Yes, repent and you shall enter the kingdom. Repent, and you shall be saved. You remember even Nicodemus one day came to Jesus and praised him and honored him and said, Sir, I have seen the miracles you do. No man can do the miracles you do except God be with him. And don't you think Jesus should have said, Sir, I'm very appreciative of your comment, of your evaluation of my miracles. Please join us. We only have some fishermen and a tax collector we need somebody of your dignity, your prominence in our, in our group here of apostles. Please join us. No, he said, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. But wait a minute. Nicodemus praised him, didn't he? He said, in effect, I've seen many of your miracles, and they're not sleight of hand tricks. And by the way, a sleight of hand trick can deceive almost any of us if it's, if it's done skillfully. They're not demonic miracles, like many of the Pharisees concluded, not real miracles that came from Satan. Satan doesn't go around healing people. No, no, making announcements of glad tidings and promises like of the kingdom. No, your miracles, sir, must be from God. They're divine. But you see, to say that the miracles of Jesus were genuine, undeniable, and divine is infinitely insufficient you have to say Jesus himself is our Savior who paid the price that we infinitely, desperately need to have paid, that we cannot pay, paid the price upon the cross. And so that's why we have the favorable year of the Lord proclaimed, according to Isaiah, that, that 
wonderful appealing voice of Jesus. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. And I say, dear Jesus, you're right. The burden you put upon us is light. Yes, that yoke is easy to carry because you are the one who paid the price. You are the one alone who can save to the uttermost all those who put their trust in you, even, yes, perhaps especially at this Christmas season. Friends, have you received him? Is he your savior? Are your loved ones true believers? Are you praying for people that they might come to Jesus as their Lord and their savior and their king? May God bless you richly on this Christmas time of this year and may the Lord Jesus meet every need in your heart, in your family, in your home for his glory. Thank you. God bless you. Well, there certainly is an appeal to the voices of the Christmas prophets as there is also to the voice of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We welcome your testimonies about the meaning of Christmas on our page at facebook.com forward slash Whitcomb Ministries. That's where we're posting some new devotions by Dr. Whitcomb called God's Whispers of Christmas. Now, Dr. Whitcomb, your message today has really provoked my thinking, and I believe I have the perfect question for this lesson. Why didn't more of the Jewish people, and especially those closest to Jesus, believe on him when they heard this appealing voice? Wayne, that's an absolutely profound question. Why didn't those closest to Jesus in the nation of Israel, even his own family, believe in him? John chapter 1 begins to answer that question. It says, There was the true light, Jesus, the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. There's no light about God apart from Jesus, friends. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, his own people, his own family, his own nation, and those who were his own did not receive him. Now look what happened when Jesus was in Jerusalem performing miracles in the temple. It says in John 2.23, When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. Now look, they believed that he was a miracle worker. But, now this is the shocker, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them. Why not? He knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. What does that mean? It means, friends, that outward excitement about the miracles of Jesus was not sufficient. They had to believe in his Savior's work, salvation work, that they had to repent of their sin and come to him as the Savior. Not a great miracle worker, which he was, and thousands and tens of thousands of Jews agreed on that. He was a Savior. He came not to entertain us, shock us, surprise us, no, but to what? To save us from our sin penalty forever. And so when you turn over to John chapter 7, perhaps it's even more shocking. Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem. Look what happened. John verse 7. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he is unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was at hand, and his brothers, you remember he had brothers who were, what, uh, children, later children of Mary and Joseph, half-brothers, all right? His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples may also behold your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now listen, for not even his brothers were believing in him. 
You say, that's astounding. His own half-brothers rejected his claims to be the Messiah, which their mother and father, of course, had told them that he was. And, and so Jesus had to endure the awful shame of being rejected by his own immediate family in Nazareth, as well as the other Jews around the nation. Friends, before we are astonished at this, look at us today. We are becoming more ashamed of even the Christmas season and what it represents, aren't we? Many stores and business industries are saying we're not committed, we're not involved, we're not identifying with Christmas because that's a controversial issue. We don't believe that Jesus is the essential, ultimate, unique, sole Savior of the world. So may we examine our own hearts by the Holy Spirit to realize why we don't believe instead of saying, why didn't they believe when Jesus was here? Why aren't we believing and honoring him day by day as we witness to people of the uniqueness of Jesus, the Savior of the world. That's the true meaning of Christmas, isn't it? May we search our hearts and believe in Jesus as our Lord and our King. Well, thank you, Dr. Whitcomb. You know, Christmas is only two weeks away, friends. Are you ready? Do you understand its true meaning? We've provided many resources to help you at sermonaudio.com forward slash Whitcomb. Follow our countdown to Christmas there by listening to presentations about Christ's first coming each day between now and Christmas. For a schedule of upcoming events and other information, please join us at WhitcombMinistries.org. Once again, I'm Wayne Shepherd, reminding you that God's Word is true from the beginning to the end, including its description of the Christmas message. We'll learn more about it next week as we conclude our series on the voices of the Christmas prophets. Until then, thank you so much for listening.